Watch podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch podcast, we're going to be discussing the fourth in a series of four Beef Watch webinars held in the month of February focused on stalker and yearling management. These Beef Watch webinars are available for viewing at the beef.unl.edu website. Today's topic is going to come from the fourth webinar that focused on utilizing stalkers and yearlings as part of a production system and also utilizing those as part of an opportunity for drought management. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Logan Pribino, who's part of a family operation in Southwest Nebraska. Thanks for joining me today, Logan. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here. Logan, before we dive into and go into more depth on the topic that you talked about, share with us a little more about yourself, your background, and your role with the operation there. Uh, well, I'm Logan Pribino. I'm fifth generation at Wineglass Ranch. I uh, returned to the operation about 10 years ago uh, after a short uh, education and career in California. Um, I'm educated in economics and finance. I came back to the family operation 10 years ago with that acumen, and I think it's been a, a very good good fit so far. Logan, tell us a little more about the operation, the different components that are part of that, and how those pieces fit together. Sure. Well, uh, Wine Glass Ranch in southwest Nebraska, only about 15 miles away from the Colorado state line. A limited precipitation uh, environment. We do run cows. We run over 1,000 cows as part of our cow-calf enterprise. And um, our centerpiece enterprise, though, is, is stalkers. Uh, you know, more than half of our business comes from uh, running uh, yearlings on an annual basis. And we also do um, farm, some dryland farm ground as well. Uh, and and the, the cow-calf and the farm ground combined really don't quite uh, amount to the volume that we deal with them in the stalker. So we are today at least primarily a stalker operation. What does kind of that look like in terms of your production system with your stalker yearling operation? Well, uh, for the stalkers, and we've, you know, it just gone back to some history, you know, we've always run steers. My dad, I, I grew up around steers and cows as well, but, um, you know, we've always been closer to half and half for about the last 30 years, which is uh, somewhat unique in, in the state. Uh, so I, I grew up around them. Uh, I learned from a young age, you know, what a steer is. So I, I have a little bit of an, an advantage there. Uh, what we're doing currently, and, you know, this seems to shift every 10 years or so, because you, you have to kind of find an edge and, and ride it. Uh, what we're doing is we're buying ballers in the fall, uh, and they're, they're natural gap floor ballers. Uh, we specialize in straightening those out, and it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. You know, I, I will always be straightening out cattle. Um, we're, as an operation, we're particularly good at it. And we kind of, you know, man, when October rolls around, we're circling the wagons and making sure that the calves that we get in are getting the, the care that they need. And from there, we're going we're gonna to take those on to varying forage resources. Uh, but big picture, uh, the idea is to sell a natural nine weight uh, in September. It's kind of the general overview of the stalker program. Talk about the forage resources you have available to you and how you've put those together in a system that, that fits that stalker phase and really allows you to put that calf from October till September, uh, all the phases that make that fit together. 
infrastructure. We don't own a feed truck uh, per se. We do a lot of heavy supplementing. So uh, we do have a grow yard here at the yard to get the ballers in, a very small one that we have to really flex and fully utilize uh, in the fall. It's about, needs to be about four times the size of what it is. Uh, and our, our neighbors, K cattle, they come over and feed and and it works out. It's a, it's a great collaboration partnership and really appreciate them uh, doing it for us. And we've been working together with them for, oh, over 10 years now on that. So they'll be in the feedlot for a very short amount of time. I really can only afford to feed these animals uh, while I'm taking the ball off them. So in general, we're going to feed them for about 30 to 60 days. Uh, and the 30 to 60 is kind of key because you're with ballers at day 30, you're going to, uh, the problems come to fruition at day 30. Uh, and that's when you kind of start to see the, the fallout and the death loss. So it's critical to keep them, keep them um, around and close so you can manage them through that period. And then we'll, we'll kick them out onto rented irrigated cornstalk fields where we'll supplement them, you know, about three to four pounds per head per day with a, with a 28% dry distillers cube that we, that we get in from uh, Eastern Nebraska and we supplement them with our fertilizer wagons. Uh, so this time of year, we've got uh, pretty much one guy uh, going around and supplementing all of our steer and calf groups with, uh, with that wagon. And on the, on the irrigated cornstalk fields, they'll do about a 1.0 average daily gain to a 1.5 average daily gain. Last year, we, there was a September hailstorm and it put a lot of corn on the ground. Uh, it was a challenge for a lot of people, in particular uh, the cow guys, because it was too much corn for cows, that's for sure. But uh, I was sure blessing for us. Uh, we did about a 2.0 average daily gain uh, on those corn stock fields. Uh, worked out really well, home run. Uh, from those corn stock fields, we go to like a rented wheat pasture uh, where we'll, we'll partner with some irrigated farmers that kind of squeeze wheat or rye into their rotation. Uh, working with some now that are really interested in getting some animal integration into their, their farm ground um, and, and monetizing that, uh, which has been really cool and a fun, fun process for me. Uh, on the rented wheat pasture, they'll do about a 1.75 approximately. They can do as low as a 1.2 and as good as a about a 2.2, but a 1.5 is about all you can count on. From there, they'll go on our native range and on the native range, they'll do about 1.5 average daily gain. And off the native range, we'll, we'll ship the heavy end and then we'll take the light end onto our, our forage or cover crop, like a sorghum sedan mix uh, to kind of bring the, the light end up to that, that nine weight figure. As you think about just all the pieces that fit together, Logan, there's obviously a lot of moving parts. How do you think through and put those all together? You've got a sequence of various people you're partnering with to make this, this puzzle fit. How do you think that through and, and logistically, how do you make that work? You know, it is, uh, stalkers are a logistical nightmare. Uh, and especially the way that we run them and, you know, most people, uh, it is, it's a lot easier logistically to just build a feed yard and put them in it and take the truck to them on a daily basis. It's simpler and my death, my dad, who fed cattle for many, many, many years, uh, is amazed at the complexity. Uh, where where we shine is, uh, you know, it, it's a lot cheaper for for them to graze, and, and it, 
it's a lot cheaper for us anyway to to send steers to where the feed is uh, as opposed to the the inverse but we've we've got a very good crew here um it's it's we got seven and a half full-time employees and it does it involves it involves a lot of planning a lot of sorting a lot of shipping um uh you know to run stockers it's work uh it, it is and 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 if you're a cowman uh it's a different type of work and and the cowman is it's, it's a skilled role more skilled position perhaps but uh stalkers are work and i've found that uh we're better compensated for that work and completing that work and straightening these animals out and providing a really nice product to these feedlots uh in september you talked a little bit about uh, utilizing some dryland farm ground as a place to graze some yearlings in the summer. That would be, I would say, non-traditional or non-typical for your part of the world. How did you move into that? What did you find as, and how does that, I guess, fit in your total system as you think about cropping and your annual forages? Sure. A uh, big picture, you know, I, I am a grazer. I, I just want to graze the world. Uh, so I, when I look at a uh, something I envision grazing it. So th that's important to know what I came to. And so we started experimenting with forage and cover crops, you know, many, many years ago before me, in fact, uh, but they weren't in place at the time when I came back. So I kind of uh, jumped that program back up uh, in particular, as we kind of, you know, when I first came back, we were in a higher price environment and, you know, uh, it didn't make as much sense. And, and uh, that was 10 years ago. And, and we entered into a lower price environment where it looked much more favorable. Uh, and uh, the program, man, we, we tried a hundred things, not, not quite a hundred, but maybe 20 different forage crops. And what we've really arrived at is, and that we do on a big scale and fits very nice in our rotation is, we'll, in early June, we'll drill like a sorghum sedan mix with pearl millet it's a bunch of different sorghum sedans and, and we, we try to be pretty cost competitive on it. So we're not particular really what goes into it, but we do throw in some forbs and some legumes in there on a very small scale, just so we can call it a cover crop instead of a forage crop. But we drill that in June um, and then we can graze that starting about uh, middle of July on our dryland farm ground. Uh, you know, so it's the dryland rotation here in typically involves a year of fallow. And what we've done is we've grown this crop as a replacement for the fallow period. So it's kind of filling, um, it's filling a, an area in our farmland rotation that was, would be underutilized. So it, it fits us very uniquely too. And um, to visualize this forage crop is, you know, we just grow like silage. And um, we, instead of taking a silage chopper out there, we just, you know, run a big group of yearlings out there and, um, have them harvested directly. And so we don't worry about regrowth. Uh, I know some many successful people in our area, expanded area, have done it with the with irrigation and and, and uh, regrazing. But for us, it's a, we grow a standing silage crop. And instead of putting the silage uh, harvester out there, we put the steers out there instead. How do you manage just the, the variation in growth that occurs with that, obviously based on precipitation and then also just thinking about timing of when that crop is optimum. And there's, it seems to me oftentimes kind of a narrow window when you have a targeted time to get there. How do you manage that uh, with the system you're in? It's a really good question. Uh, thanks for asking it. Uh, the, 
one of the reasons that we've really arrived at this sorghum sedan. So we tried oats and some rye, and, and you know they they work more on better on the irrigated system. Um, we, the sorghum sedan mix works really well for us because it it's fairly cost effective. It's fairly moisture. Uh, for example, I've found that we've been growing this crop for um, six or seven years now. I grow about the same steer days an acre, which is 100 steer days an acre, whether or not it rains uh, 15 inches or 25 inches, which conceptually makes sense to, you know, the agronomists that are, would be listening. Um, you know, I can grow corn here every year. Uh, I, can, I can actually grow Iowa population or eastern Nebraska population corn at like 33,000. And um, it'll grow every year, but it won't grow in ear. Uh, because half of the water requirement and half of the fertilizer requirement goes to the, the ear fill, whereas uh, the first half goes to the plant. So it's a very resilient crop for us. The, the disadvantage would be there's no, you know, so if it does rain 25 inches, there's not a whole lot of upside potential. It's, there are some good things, but financially there's not a whole lot of upside potential, but it is, it's consistent. And as we, as we've, think about uh, drought or, or a dry period. Um, if, if we just get some rain, I'm, I'm pretty much know how many steer days an acre I'm gonna grow out there. How does this sorghum sedan fit in your cropping rotation? I'm just thinking about the crop that's gonna come subsequent to that. Uh, how does that all fit together and how do you terminate the crop? Are you no-till? What are the pieces that fit that make this work? Good question. Uh, it, our typically, it's a, typically our fallow replacement. So it would, it would be, uh, we'd be drilling in June into corn stalks and that we would be, would be drilling wheat into the residue behind it. Uh, we are no-till, uh, we run large groups and um, so we don't need to, well in most years we don't need to do any sort of chemical fallow because we're, we're grazing like a group of like 800 on a you know, we're, we're very much intensively grazing this crop, so we're pretty much annihilating it as we go. Uh, so typically, we are drilling wheat into this into this uh, residue. We did not do that this year. It was so dry in September that, and prior to that as well, that we decided that we were not going to uh, try to to follow it with wheat. And I'm very glad that we didn't. Uh, there is uh, summer fallow wheat uh, in our county that looks you know very poor uh from good operators too so i, I don't think it, i think it would have would have been a crop failure year so this year what we're going to going to do is we're going to be planting dry land uh corn behind it uh which we've done in the past but we're going to do it on a on a larger scale this year and i'm, I'm really we've done it on a few quarters i like what i see it's a it's a good high residue environment and i'm i'm hopeful even in a drier and if it's a drought you know Corn is not the best crop for southwest Nebraska for a dryland farmer, but uh, um, if we can get some rains, and even if it's a little dry, I'm confident that we can grow a very nice corn crop following it. What does your water situation look like on that ground? I'm thinking here about water delivery to those yearlings. You're in a dry environment, and you don't have you know a pivot there or a well like that. So how do you supply and deliver water to those cattle when they're grazing? Most of the grazing that we do is our dryland farm ground that is on the ranch uh, north of Imperial. And we've got, uh, always have, so I, I came back and there was already 
three-strand high tensile wire in the, the farm ground. So again, I'm kind of just building off of some some things that the other, the previous generation, my dad, at least experimented with. Um, and so, you know, uh, yeah, it's it, it it's a it's a slam dunk for us because we've got pipeline water and you know high tensile fence around 90% of these fields. So logistically, it's uh, and we got a team too. So logistically. Um, I, you know, it's almost easy for us. It's not easy in any way, shape, or form, but compared to many other operators, it's, it's almost easy for us to kind of get this task accomplished. We've talked about dry conditions a number of times and drought. How do you utilize stockers with your program there? You mentioned you also have around 1,000 cow-calf. How do stockers fit in your drought management plan? Are there trigger dates at which you say, hey, if we don't have X amount of rain or forage growth by this time, uh, this set of stockers are going to go. How does that all fit together for you? Uh, good question. And here's what, here is my favorite part about stockers. Uh, the best case scenario is not an above average rainfall year, uh, which we've had many over the last five. Uh, my performance is down. And so we do more work and I harvest less beef. Uh, last year, for example, we were, we had 13% less than the ad, average annual precipitation. We harvested 13% less AUMs off of the range and our beef pounds harvested off the range were up 20%. So in layman's terms, you know, we did, we did less work for more money. So if you are a stalker operator and you are in Nebraska, that the best case scenario in terms of rainfall is slightly below average. I don't ever hope for that. I am a cowman and I'm a corn farmer as well. So, um, you know, I don't go out and pray for a drought, but um, it is very nice to at least have one enterprise that is drought, not, it's, it's not drought resilient. It's uh, maybe like an anti-fragile. Uh, so when I do enter a drought, my yearling program is gonna shine. Uh, and you're talking about the emotion of managing drought, which is often the hardest um, just imagine having, you know, half of your business uh, be be better off in a dry condition. It, it, it does a lot for the soul and the bottom line. Uh, for trigger dates, too, uh, I'll hit on that. Uh, we do have a critical decision date of May 30th. So for 90% uh, or less of our average rainfall at that point, we set into motion events that are going to occur on June 30th. What that looks like, it's it's destocking uh, the range, and what you do is you, for us, you, we go top off our our steer groups, and uh, you know those those heavy steers are consuming the most grass, and they're also the lowest value of gain. So it's kind of a no-brainer that you're just going to go and kind of top off every group, um, which is, yeah, which is, it's not bad. You know, you hate to, it's it's not fun to destock a cow calf or there's some emotions involved in that as well, but it's just not fun in general. But, you know, it's fun to go into a group and go sort off the 950 pound animals and take them to the sale. Uh, it's a generally a good time to sell them too. Uh, whereas oftentimes with cows or pears, it's not always the best time, especially during a drought. So uh, first thing to go is, is the steers. And, you know, we're, we're sufficiently stocked that, you know, even in a drought uh, we could, we could keep the cow herd uh, intact without having to dig into it unless we wanted. Anything else, Logan, that you think would be valuable for people to know as they think about utilizing stalkers and yearlings as part of a production system? 
Um, yeah, you have to have an edge. Uh, you can't just you can't just in April go buy a steer, um, give him the same acres that you give your pair, and then just go and sell them in September and expect to make money. You have to you have to do something that maybe a feedlot's not willing to do. For us, that's that's buy a natural baller. Uh, we specialize in that, and it it has rewarded us the last few years. So I'm not competing against my the people I'm selling to. If you just show up at a sale barn in Nebraska in April and you're buying straightened out six weights to go put on grass, you you are you're outbidding your customer. You know the feedlot is in there bidding on those animals. That took me a little while to understand, and I would encourage people to to seek out training uh, if you are going to go into stalkers. Uh, and for a young, you know, if you're a young producer, for the, you know, the love of God, don't go borrow money and buy a bunch of cows. It, the margins are thin. You know, the, the way into this industry in Nebraska, I firmly believe the stalkers, but you do need some training. Uh, Wally Olson has uh, a good class uh, on value in the, the cattle, cattle market, a nice two-day class. And then uh, there's various Bud Williams marketing classes that are being taught and um, I sure would recommend to anyone looking to get into the stalker world to to start there, and you'll be better off than just showing up in the buying a steer. Logan, thanks again for joining me today for your candidness about what you're doing with your operation. It's been really fun to have this conversation with you. I appreciate it, Aaron. Thank you. For more information on the topic that was discussed in today's Beef Watch podcast, I'd encourage you to visit the beef.unl.edu website. Again, this conversation comes from a presentation made by Logan Pribino, focused on utilizing stalkers as part of a production system, specifically also thinking about the flexibility that gives with the drought type scenario.